0: this week on the it's a monkey podcast
1: i think what drives amazon is to serve new customers and existing customers in new ways and to reinvent many of the businesses that they're involved in largely using technology and and digital approaches to help reinvent around the traditions of uh, of businesses. And I, I think they see themselves as explorers and inventors and they're willing to undertake hard and really long uh, problems to help invent and and make the experience so much better. And that reflects itself not only in the retail business but in the cloud business and in many other businesses that they're in.
0: Good morning, good evening, hello wherever you are in the world. It is Thursday the 6th of July 2017 here in a beautiful Sydney, Australia. We are having just sunshine after sunshine after sunshine even though it is middle of our winter. It is like spring, 18 degrees Celsius every day. You with me, Kevin Garber, I'm the CEO of Managed Flitter and soon to be Managed Social as well. And you're listening to episode 98 of the It's a Monkey podcast, where we talk about everything relating to tech, entrepreneurship, startup, and all those exciting bits and pieces. And with me, as usual, is my co-host, Kate Frappel, who's the design lead at Manage Social and Manage Flutter. And for the first time, we're doing this remotely via Skype because Kate has relocated to the wonderful land of Canadia From Yeah. Uh, so uh, you and Whistler, Kate, is that right?
2: Yes, yes, just moved to Whistler, B.C., so about two hours out of Vancouver.
0: And... Um yeah, well, it's good that we're going to be able to keep up these these podcasts and uh, we have to juggle all the time zone bits and pieces. But so we're going to keep them going. And uh, today's episode 98. And coming up later in the show, um, I've got a fantastic interview with John Rossman. Now, John Rossman used to work um, at Amazon pretty high up in the exec suite there. And he's written a book about his experience and the 14 principles that Amazon go by with their work culture. So that was really interesting. So that's coming up later on in the show. But as usual, Kate and I just touch on a few of uh, the the tech stories of the week because, boy, does our industry move so fast. Kate, we've been speaking a lot on the podcast about Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies. One of the challenges with cryptocurrencies has been that it's 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 still pretty early days in the sense of uh, being able to trust it. Um, um, as Tim um, Lee, who's uh, been on the show, uh, he's the author of, of a book about the blockchain, mentions 30% of uh, online wallets have been hacked. And unfortunately, this week, um, the fourth largest Bitcoin exchange, and I think one of the largest Ethereum, which is one of the uh, one of the popular cryptocurrencies, one of the largest Ethereum exchanges, uh, was actually hacked for, for billions of won. So it was a South Korean bitcoin exchange and uh, unfortunately they got nailed this week
2: yes there are um, a few cases where people are reporting losing 1.2 billion uh, won in bitcoin um, that have been stolen from these hackers which uh, by my, my calculation is about a million dollars usd
0: and i think more than the actual amount um, is that the, the, the distrust that it creates in the industry, right? It's, I mean, you're not, you're hmm. not going to, you're not going to put a mon- you're not going to put a money in a bank if every couple of months a bank gets hacked, even just a little bit, right? It's like.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's, for sure. And the other thing is they're not only just taking the money, they're taking their names and phone numbers and email addresses as well. So like your whole identity is at risk.
0: Well, what I found interesting about this hack is there was um, a layer of social engineering that happened, right? They were calling people that had um, cryptocurrency in this exchange and they were saying that they were, these hackers were, were saying that they were from the exchange, right and mm. saying that we need to double check there's a there's an unauthorized transaction in your account please give me some details please do this please do that and of course you know it, it it's easy to perhaps judge these people but if someone would call you from the bank we're so used to authenticating ourselves with these companies but we're not used to authentic authentic having them authenticate themselves right Right. So, if someone would call, I mean, if someone would call you from your bank and say, "Hi, Kate, it's it's ComBank here. Um, I need you to do log in and do something because there's been an issue with your account." If they sound professional, would you actually challenge them?
2: Yes and no. So lately, I've been getting a lot of uh, notifications from the bank saying, "We will never ask you for X. Um, Don't don't provide us with X." Um, I think because the banks themselves are waking up to the fact that. There's lots of hackers and these are the type of things that hackers are going to ask for. Um, But on the other hand, particularly if I had an existing issue with the bank, uh, I probably would just spill all my details to them and trust them.
0: Yeah, I think uh, people have to be incredibly vigilant. I know some telcos allow you to put a, a special password over and above your normal credentials so every time you chat with them they ask you for your password. You Mm. can, you cannot have too many layers these days. Identity, um, Theft is a real issue. I know people where they have, uh, um, you know, had issues with with uh, amounts being clocked up in their name. So you you really have to be careful with all of this. And it's um, yeah. And the cryptocurrency space, it's it's a shame because you know this this credibility has the potential to actually kill the whole industry. Um, as these hacks continue to happen, no one can really take it seriously. Um, I think. You know what would be great would you know there has been some talk about countries like Dubai and um, Estonia creating their own cryptocurrency. And what would be really yeah. great is if one of these current uh, countries did create uh, their own cryptocurrencies with its own features and with its own sort of guarantees and security and just. Um, Sidestep, you know cryptocurrency being you know a toy in a way and let's start getting serious about cryptocurrencies and challenging all the the sort of potholes and um, you know the weaknesses in it but um, yes until all these hacks until we move that 30 percent of uh, online wallets have been hacked right down to maybe 0.1 percent this industry is not really going to get serious attention, it's a, it's, it's a big issue. And um, it's, it's not a simple um, thing to solve. And that's why banks, that's why banks um, you know, still exist, because securing money is still not an easy thing to do. Um, they've been mm. doing it for a long time. There's some even federal guarantees in a lot of uh, countries that even if the bank loses a, a certain amount of your money, you are gonna get them back. So all of these layers add to the trust that we have in the system.
2: Definitely. Um, And even in the article uh, that you sent me, it says at the bottom, you know, that some countries like Japan, you know, they've started to bring in like, or give cryptocurrency a legal standing. So eventually South Korea and stuff as well, I think will start bringing in bills that um, can stop packing and help with the making cryptocurrency legitimate, I guess
0: yeah yeah no, it needs to be a multi pronged approach and I definitely think when we have have the first national cryptocurrency um and I think all the countries are are waiting for someone to take the first move um, mm. you know humans are humans are are very predictable like that no one ever wants to take the first move they get confidence <laughs> from each other. I always laugh when I go to events and and so often no one wants to ask the first question and once the first question's been asked, all the hands go up it's just that is true. That is true. Um, you ask
2: one, and then everyone's like, "Oh, I can do better than that one," or "I've got another question related to that one," and it just
0: keeps going. Exactly. Bitcoin's price is still holding, though. It's still about two thousand six hundred US dollars. I mean, a few months ago, what four months ago, it was eight hundred US dollars. I mean, that's just such a huge jump, and it's still holding. So um, it's interesting
2: yeah. as well. Like uh, since since coming to Whistler. Uh, I've actually met a few people who have spoken to me about, you know, Bitcoin and uh, they're trading in Ethereum and I was like, wow, like it's just, it seems, it's more uh, common now people are talking about it.
0: Yeah, it's gone, you know, money, uh, money raises the profile of things, Kate, you know, when yep. when, when, the, <laughs> when the price went, I mean, I think I mentioned on the previous podcast that uh, you know, I had friends who, 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 you know, when I was speaking to them a year ago about blockchain and Bitcoin, and these are guys in finance, they're like, oh, not for me, not for me, not for me. And suddenly, when the prices went nuts, I suddenly started getting this phone call and saying, tell me about this Bitcoin <laughs> thing. You know? Yeah, that's true. So they're remarkably If They can pro- make something. So if you are going to double in Bitcoin and Ethereum and cryptocurrencies, be careful because online wallets do get hacked. And ironically, as Tim Lee explained, that people that are very careful actually print out their private keys and have them on paper in a safe deposit box, not on their computers, which is a bit ironic. That's the safest thing is to have details of your wallet on a piece of paper in a safety deposit box. But yeah, mm, anyway. Definitely. Um, so that's, that's Bitcoin. And then... Um, Staying in that part of the world, so that was a South Korean exchange that got hacked. Shanghai is developing a face, facial recognition system to identify jaywalkers. I'm not sure whether to love or hate this, Kate.
2: I feel like I hate it already. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, from what I read, basically, the they've tested a, a camera at a red light, pedestrian red light, and... They're basically just going to name and shame anyone that jaywalks. So they'll record you if they detect movement on a red light, and then they're going to throw your picture uh, and your name, like your identity, onto the closest bus stop, and then they're also going to charge
0: you. And this all just happens seamlessly. Just, you just.
2: Well, yeah, supposedly. In this test, they they got 300 people, but only four of them were able to be identified and punished. So they might have a little way to go.
0: There's a couple but the of the idea
2: is kind of crazy to me. A
0: couple of false positives, right? Yes. Oh yes. I mean, I think so. It sort of works with theft. I mean, I know in Sydney when there's shoplifting, stores you know sometimes take a snap from their CCTV and they and they put it they try to shame them on the store window, but I guess shoplifting is a a little bit more of a serious crime than than jaywalking.
2: Yes, I agree. I agree. I don't think, I mean, yes, jaywalking is against the law, but it feels like a, a money revenue raiser for the government to me.
0: I mean, facial recognition and image recognition is just so advanced. It's 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 a little bit spooky. I mean, I uploaded an old photo, maybe a three-month-old photo, four-month-old photo to Facebook yesterday of me and a friend at a cafe. And yeah. um, it was probably three-quarters of the photo were was my body and their body that took up most of the photo but there was a little bit of a background of maybe there was um like a, a shelf and a cup of coffee but not much at all and facebook said oh were you at two chaps cafe is this photo at two chaps cafe oh right now okay I, i'm not sure if they got that from some meta tag information in the photo like gps that I'm not aware of that um, on my Android, there's some meta information there, or it actually somehow from all the photos at this cafe, it has built up a profile almost of every little image profile at this cafe. Uh, But I was was quite amazed that from that little bit of information, um, it wasn't a sign, it wasn't sort of an expansive photo of the cafe, and it identified what cafe this photo was taken at.
2: Yeah. Yeah, obviously I don't know a hundred percent, but to me it sounds like they've mapped the cafe. So they've—I've been reading a few things where they're sort of compiling Google Maps for interiors, if that makes sense. So inside public places, in museums, probably in cafes and stuff too, from other people's pictures. So the good chance, yeah, they've just picked up on a a scene in a particular area and they've matched it with that cafe.
0: It's remarkable though when you'll see this photo what a small proportion of background is in this photo, though. Yeah, that's, that's odd. Really, and obviously, I didn't, really odd. I didn't upload it at the cafe. I uploaded it on the go miles away, so it wasn't from that. Um, the only thing I could think of is, is any meta information. But, yeah, I mean, you know, coming back to this facial recognition, these these images are just, you know, there's tons of information in them. I mean, I'm sure very soon they'll be able to be searchable um, in interesting ways. Um, mm so it's
2: interesting too as i didn't i didn't realize but um that article was saying that china has a identity database so they can match match people's photos with their identity and their address and that's where they send the fines to
0: right right and that's I, why i mean
2: yeah. yeah i don't know but i feel like they don't really have that back home in sydney
0: no, I mean, we've got a driver's license, which is sort of a de facto identity card, or you need to get an identity card if you don't have a driver or proof of age that, that you need. Yeah. But there's no identity sort of, you know, mega database per se, but there's, there's just the de facto one. And people have pushed back against having an identity database for that exact reason, because if it gets into the wrong hands, it can be interrogated. But there's so much data about everyone these days that... Um, for sure, for sure.
2: And like it almost sounds a little bit hypocritical that you put all your details on, on Twitter but you don't want to give them to the government. But I think there's just this sort of uh, distrust in a lot of people where they don't, you know, they don't want to give the government all their details straight off like that. You know, they're going to get fined or tracked down and stuff like that. You know, it's a bit different.
0: You know what the thing is, Kate? I think these days, um, a lot of the time, companies are doing better jobs um, of all of the data than governments i mean last night was one of the deadlines for the tax in australia their systems crashed again and granted you know when you have a whole country trying to submit something but you know if this was a google system you know or a facebook system there's a high chance they got the expertise and the experience and the you know to make this happen um that yeah it would be a lot uh faster and <laughs> executed better yeah in the old days you know 50 years ago 60 years ago governments were the only one that had the resources to, to to have expensive computers and things like that but this is where the power is is shifting so much and this is where blockchain technology is so exciting in that in getting involved with governance and and aspects like that moving that even lower down to the people and and concentrating it less in the government per se yes
2: yes it's very true very true
0: Anyway, uh, this is episode number 88 of the To Monkey Podcast. Please email us, podcast at uh, to say hi. Please rate us on iTunes. Please tell your friends. Please try out Manage Flutter or sign up for the Manage Social Alpha. It's very, very close to Alpha if you're an Instagram user or you're a Twitter user. It's a great set of tools to, to help you grow your account. Tweet us, uh, we love to hear from you. And if you wanna be um, a guest on the show, um, please email us at podcast.it'samonkey.com. We're gonna take a short break and then uh, we're gonna play my interview that I did with John Rossman, who's a digital and internet of uh, things expert. Uh, he's a, a managing director of Alvarez and Marseille. He's a keynote speaker, he's an author. He used to work at um, amazon.com, and has written a terrific book about his experience there. So uh, stay with us and we'll be back after the short break.
3: Hi, my name is Joe Pinto, I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word "cyclists" in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used ManageFlitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough.
0: You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter and soon to be Manage Social as well, our new reworked social media management platform. We talk about everything relating to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and of course, how could you mention all of those things without the name of one particular company called amazon amazon recently punched through the one thousand dollar share price level amazon basically is a is a platform these days not only where we buy so many things and that's how amazon started but it's actually a platform with which a lot of the internet that we use including things like Netflix, actually sits on Amazon's servers in the AWS side of things. And I'm very excited to say I've managed to find someone who has not only worked deep in the bowels of Amazon, but has actually written a couple of books about Amazon. Um, So from the west coast of the USA, happy to say I've got John Rossman, who's the managing director at Alvarez and uh, Marcel, and he's also written a couple of books including a book titled, um, The Amazon Wait. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Kevin, thanks for having me, great to be here. Now, we obviously, we, we don't give financial advice on this podcast, but um, Amazon punching through 1000s. I mean, a lot of people were waiting for a couple of other shares to get there first. I think uh, Google being one of them, but Amazon made, it, uh, Amazon made it to the post a little bit quicker.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the market is rewarding Amazon and Google for um, their performance and what they see as a as a very rosy future. Now, Amazon, of course, fam- famously, or Jeff Bezos,
0: I should say, the founder of Amazon. Now, now actually, before that, I you, you know Jeff uh, Bezos is based was based out of Seattle, and Amazon is based out out of Seattle. Now, in the Bay Area, there's this religious idea almost of starting up businesses with the co-founder i think it's almost impossible to get funding for a business if you don't actually have a tech founder maybe two tech co-founders or a tech founder and a non-tech founder jeff started that business alone am i correct in saying he did get some funding but he he wasn't that typical uh co-founder scenario
1: that's right he is the sole founder so of course in typical to
0: jeff's style he was um He was contrarian uh, right from the start.
1: Well, yeah, I think he's always um, had a big vision and seen the opportunity to, you know, serve customers in new ways. And he's always... Viewed Amazon as a technology company and retail was kind of the first manifestation of their business model, but they've never limited themselves to just retail or or really to any constraint. It's, um, you know, I started using
0: Amazon way back when it was really just books. And, uh, you know, old habits die hard, John. I still struggle to break free from that um, headspace that they sell more than books. But, of course, we have been at the disadvantage in Australia in that generally you've only been able to buy books actually on Amazon. A lot of the other interesting bits and pieces we haven't been able to buy yet. I believe Amazon is going to do a local launch in Australia sometime this year, which is exciting consumers and putting a lot of fear into
1: the retailers. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly kind of what their game plan is for Australia still has to unfold. But yeah, absolutely, it's coming. And they are way beyond books, music and video and the business I ran at Amazon. So I launched the third-party selling marketplace back nice. in 2002 and 2003, and that was really the the platform and the vehicle that we used to launch so many new categories, primarily with third-party sellers kind of leading the way. But as Amazon has has grown and learned the business, they um, carry some products, uh, vendor products, and they also launch their own private label brands. So
0: Amazon seemed to have quite early in the piece, and you know, got their head around the idea of platforms, which is just so interesting because it's almost it's it's almost textbook against conventional wisdom is to hold on to your competitive advantage and not sort of open up a platform that will almost allow your competitors to work alongside you. I mean Amazon's one of the few places I think you can buy the new product from Amazon and you can buy a secondhand product from someone else, but of course, on a platform that was created by Amazon and by the sounds of things, you were heavily involved in that. And that's, that's, that's incredibly, I don't think people realize how um, groundbreaking um, such a seemingly small innovation is like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you mentioned a really key innovation that people just don't give enough credit to, which is. You know, selling a used item right next to a brand new item. In fact, it's on the same detail page, right? So it's it's listed as the same item with multiple offers across it, really revolutionary in its time. And then the platform businesses are really the notion of how do we take a core capability turn it inside out and let others not only use it, but to actually innovate on top of it. And Amazon has a number of platform businesses. You mentioned Amazon Web Services. The cloud business is certainly a big platform business. The marketplace is a platform business. But things like FBA, which is a fulfillment by Amazon, which allows third parties to leverage Amazon's fulfillment network, network planning, transportation capability, negotiated transportation rates, algorithms, on where to place their items in their fulfillment centers, they let others leverage that capability of helping those parties avoid having to build fulfillment centers and manage those things. But it allows Amazon to leverage their, their capital expenditure and lo- allows them to more aggressively build out their, their fixed cost infrastructure. Now before we get into
0: the the fourteen leadership principles behind the success of amazon which which uh, are so much to talk about on that side of things, curious about jeff bezos's long term play he's he's on the record many times saying that he's not interested in short term profits. the market sometimes has got a bit frustrated with that. What is as someone who's 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 uh, worked uh, with him indirectly closer than than most of us, what is his long-term play. Personally, he's involved in space exploration. He's even invested in things like Basecamp. Um, I mean, what is the meta vision and, and, and what drives Jeff? Well,
1: I think what drives Amazon is to serve new customers and existing customers in new ways and to reinvent many of the businesses that they're involved in largely using technology and and digital approaches to help reinvent around the traditions of, uh, of businesses. And I, I think they see themselves as explorers and inventors and they're willing to undertake hard and really long, uh, problems to help invent and, and make the experience so much better. And that reflects itself not only in the retail business, but in the cloud business and in many other businesses that they're in. Um, so the Amazon Way, 14 Leadership Principles of the
0: World's Most Disruptive Company, just reads like uh, I'm, I'm looking at the 14 principles and I want to talk through each of them because as a CEO, one of my frustrations is communicating what we're about in a, in a way that our team understands and, and some of us, um, especially the people that have been with my team for a longer period of time, get what we're about, but for us to articulate that is so so difficult and I just want to read these four principles because they're just so fantastic. Um, Obsess over the customer. One. Two. Take ownership of results. Three. Invent and simplify. Four. Leaders are right. A lot. Five. Learn and be curious. Six. Hire and develop the best. Seven. Insist on the highest standards. Eight. Think big. 9. Have a bias for action. Boy, do I love that one. 10. Practice frugality. Frugality. Um, yes. Earn the trust of others. 11. 12. Dive deep. 13. Have a backbone. Disagree and commit. Love that one as well. And 14. Deliver results. I mean, this is it basically it covers everything in in an incredibly succinct way. I am going to print this out, put it in our Slack channels, pin it. I hope you don't
1: mind. No. And, um, you know, I think I think what's so critical about these principles is I, I, I don't advise anybody else. Like these are the right principles for anybody else. These work for Amazon, but they are authentic. They're used in everyday meetings. It really allows them to scale out consistent thinking and approaches across the organization. And for as large as Amazon is, it really is a non bureaucratic, fairly flat fast-moving, nimble organization. They they come from an entrepreneurial spirit. They want to maintain that entrepreneurial um, aspect to their business. And um, these principles are really the core that ties a very conglomerate business together in a very, you know, kind of loosely tethered manner. I,
0: I um, sort of smile gently at number 10, practice um, frugality, because uh, it's famous that in the early days, at least, um, the, the desks, I believe, at Amazon were, were trestles placed upon unwanted doors. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So th- it was a door desk, right? And so ostensibly a door with four um, wooden legs to it. And they still use door desks today as a visual reminder of, you know, a frugal, but they, they really use frugality as a forcing function to help drive innovation and improvement. Right. And so constrained resources are one of the ways that you problem solve in a different way. When you have lots of resources and you can afford to be sloppy about them, you don't, you don't get wired tight, but when you have to, when you have small margins and you have to be extremely precise, precise, and you can't afford and you can't afford quality issues guess what you have a much higher attention to operational excellence and that is that's one of the reasons why that's a principle is because they want everything to be world-class and to always be improving
0: I think um, I've got this I've got this uh, philosophy that uh, every entrepreneur should um, their first business should be a bootstrap business even if it's a lemonade stand because exactly as you say those constraints they force you to be resourceful in a way that if you're heavily funded, I mean, there's lots been written about this, that if you're a heavily funded company, you can't get distracted by that big balance and start spending on things that really don't matter. The mind is a funny thing. It's very hard to genuinely... Empathize with the situation that you are not in but when you've got constraints that are unmovable boy the the human spirit humans are alive today because we are so adaptable right and we adapt to those constraints and the business is better for it
1: and, and driving that everyday sense of urgency to get stuff done right and so you just know like hey we can't sit we can't sit idle we have to change we have to improve today I think that's really a big part of the ethos behind these.
0: John, working at Amazon, I mean, what was the the day-to-day culture? I mean, obviously, they could hire the cream of the crop. Um, you know, sometimes when I sit in a cafe in Palo Alto on one of my trips to San Francisco, or even if I sit in a cafe in the West Village in New York, the the type A DNA is thick. The type A personality DNA is thick in the air. You know, in, in Palo Alto cafes, you're just hearing talk about metrics and cryptocurrencies and and, and deep engineering problems, and it's... I mean, was Amazon have that type of DNA internally? Did it feel incredibly intellectual and and um, sort of heady and robust and and type A personality?
1: Well, um, I would say everything except the type A personality. Like like um, that doesn't necessarily rule the day. But people that are. Very intelligent, I think are nimble thinkers and problem solvers and that are action oriented and they're, they're passionate about customers and they're passionate about getting things right. And so it was a, it was a very transparent culture, meaning like you played your cards and you argued for what was right. But then when the decision was made, everybody committed to, to moving forward with it. And that's really the essence of leadership principle number 13, have backbone, disagree and commit. But um, um, it's just not a passive in general. It's not a passive aggressive in, environment and stuff. So but yeah, it was a it was a it was a great place. It was it was an always on um, kind of environment like you were always thinking about the business and what was great about Amazon was like you could get real things done without asking for much permission, you know, and everything, right? And so you had great accountability and the resources to do things right.
0: And I think what's important for people listening to this uh, podcast, we have um, a lot of people that that are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, it's quite easy to look at the outside of Amazon now, you know, the, the $1,000 plus share price and, um, you know, it's a hugely successful AWS business, et cetera, et cetera. But Amazon has also had its failures, in, including the, the Fire Phone. They've never quite cracked the phone side of things as well. So it's easy to get biased when, when companies have had success and a, a lot of the bumps in the road get smoothed over. And I'm sure we only see the tip of the iceberg. Every company has things that don't go according to plan, has disappointments, have wrong hires, have HR issues, have PR issues, etc. and I'm sure uh, Amazon has had a share of those.
1: Yeah, and you know, maybe I'm one of the few old people who remembers, you know, back in the early 2000s the cynics were high on Amazon, right? Like, you know, Amazon.bomb and Amazon wasn't gonna survive and free shipping was unsustainable and reckless and, you know, the business wasn't gonna survive, all of these things. And so it was was really by having fortitude and, and belief in the long vision and not giving way to the traditional beliefs and ways of doing business and sticking to it that, that Amazon got to where it is today. And so, you know, life and business are cycles. And I think above all else, Amazon has always been committed to some core um, assets and to some core beliefs. And, you know, they were kind of going for it from from day one and they didn't let traditional thinking get in the way of reinventing business. And it's such a the
0: physical goods business is such a difficult business you know it is i mean i don't think people if you know in the software business or in the SaaS game will um, realize how difficult e-commerce is when you've got logistics and trucks and and people in warehouses and you have to ensure physical stock and it's it's I mean, it's obviously each rung on that value chain has um, room for innovation and competitive advantage. But um, boy, it's physical good businesses
1: uh, really scare the hell out of me. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the fulfillment network and logistics capability of Amazon is an incredible asset for that organization. And I think it's one of the the ways that, you know, Amazon really differentiates itself against from some of its other, you know, kind of digital competitors, you know, like a Google and you can't just build those things in a hurry it takes a long time to build the organization to build the infrastructure to build the capability and you know that's why they continue to invest in both big ways and very innovative ways in supply chain and in fulfillment and i think it's a very exciting space for for innovation and and way bigger than just the drones that seem to get a lot of headlines (laughs) the drones
0: yes it's i think uh the, the, the drones, I think, represent, they're they a symbol of the future, John. Uh, they, are they, symbol, they, they, they are, yeah. They're a symbol of um, flying cars, and, uh, or at the very least, self-driving cars. So I think people, people do love the drones and the, the idea of a package just making its
1: way across the air um, onto our balcony. And I think what's ironic about the drones is I think it was just three years ago on a, uh, a show here in the U.S. just before Thanksgiving that Jeff announced the drone program. And again, everybody panned it. They were like, oh, what a marketing ploy. It'll never happen. Think of how fast that has advanced in just three or four years. And, you know, it wasn't five years ago that everyone was laughed at about drones. Right. It was an impossibility in our lifetime. You know, John, I saw a,
0: a little video clip on Twitter the other day from China, how they have a drone um, um, that helps to clear power lines, sometimes on power lines, pieces of material somehow obviously fly through the air or in plastic bags or things like that and get caught on the power lines. And this clip showed a drone with a flamethrower, would you believe? A small flamethrower that flies up to the power line and sort of... Burns the, the the fabric that sort of cut across the different power lines and sort of cuts it in between and makes it small so it can sort of fly off this power line. It was it was really quite
1: remarkable. Fascinating, yeah. I I, I saw one about I, I think it was in China also about a drone that could lift up to a ton. Wow, wow. There's I mean, a-
0: that's just st- stunning. You know what they can deliver, right? It's a, there's some there's some serious innovation um, going on in China. I know that's uh, that's a whole that's a whole other topic of discussion. John, John, you right. left Amazon a couple of um, years ago. What are you up to these days?
1: Yeah, I actually left quite a while ago, 12 years ago. And um, I've been a partner at a professional services firm called Alvarez Marcel that's based in New York. I live in in, uh, um, the LA area in Southern California. And we help clients kind of improve uh, their capabilities and tackle kind of hard problems that create value for clients. And I didn't start writing these books. It, It was really seven years after I left Amazon when I started writing the books. And it was a client of mine who actually uh, encouraged me because I was just taking all the little anecdotes and mindsets and tricks of Amazon and inserting them into my client's work to help make change happen. And he encouraged me to to write a book and, and so we wrote the Leadership Principles book. And then just last year, I released the Amazon way on IOT and my goal with that book was to help a business leader answer the question, what should my Internet of, the, of Things strategy be? And I didn't find anything that, that gave principles and, and durable methods to think through how can connected devices impact my business and lead you to help answer the question of what should my IoT strategy be for yourself? And so th- those are kind of the two books that I've written.
0: And what type of problems are businesses out there facing? I mean, as a consultant, you obviously get across all of them. I mean, what, what, is there a common theme um, these days? Well,
1: a lot of them are bundled under a general header, uh, header of you know, digital capabilities you know, and everything, right? But a lot of them come back to the basics. I'm an industrial engineer by background. And it's like, hey, what we really need to do is decrease cycle time, improve efficiencies, decrease costs, uh, make a better experience for our customers, right? Like that's where, that's what a lot of them come back to. And now you have a lot of different tools at your disposal to help make those things happen. But those, those, uh, efficiency attributes and goals have never changed. And so that's what they, a lot of them come under. And then, you know, the organizational churn and challenges in, Keeping up with the velocity of change, I think, is is a real challenge in businesses. There's so much, so many projects and capabilities that organizations need to, to get done. The IT organization can't possibly keep up um, among other types of, of functions in the business. And so they need help in both articulating what exactly am, am I going to get done? And then they need help in driving that change to happen and getting to the right business outcome out of it.
0: I think uh, as a CEO myself these days, the challenge I find is, is this pressure to go deep and wide at the same time. You know, Everything's becoming so specialized and you do have to focus on your industry and your organization and your domain. But at the same time, you can't take your eye off everything else that's happening out there because um it's it's going to flow back to to your core value prop in some way manner, or form but you're not exactly sure when how or what so you you have to maintain awareness about that as well
1: yeah you know um that kind of gets at the heart of something that i think amazon does really well and i write about it in my iot book which is Before they start on an initiative or a project or a program, they work very hard to get at a common understanding and a very clear articulation of exactly what are we going to do and how do we imagine that it, that it works and thinking through it in, you know, kind of a 360 degree manner. And so in, in the IOT book, I talk about, you know, the approaches that we would take of writing narratives instead of using PowerPoint to explain our ideas and our projects, writing a future press release which painted a vision for why customers would love it and what exactly about it that, you know, we accomplished to make sure that we get into clarity about writing a an FAQ, a frequently asked questions list early on covering any topic that we could imagine relative to the initiative or the proposal and writing a user manual before we developed anything. Because being able to start with the customer and working backwards and being able to write a user manual, since so many of our products were used by developers or used by customers, we wanted to just make sure that we were developing it from their point of view. So those are some of the techniques that we used at Amazon to get to clarity and simplicity within the organization, so we weren't talking past each other. It uh, helps also to get in the zone, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is—it is so hard to make things both simple and clear. Like that is a true skill, and. Most, most presentations, most deliverables, most people talk in very complex manners. And, and that's really a symptom of not understanding how to make things just as simple and clear as possible, right? I mean, I, I think it was, it was Steve Jobs who talked about, like, you know, I think it is simplicity is the greatest elegance, right? Like That, that is so true, especially in how you articulate and how you write things out.
0: It's an absolute bear of mine where uh, I talk to my team where I say, you know, when it comes to communication, don't worry about the being creative and funny. That's for the one percenters. Clarity, clarity gets you all the way. Uh, and, and it's something that I'm, I'm frustrated with our education system and, and I'm not picking on any country. I just see it, it just it's whether it's universities or schools, it's just trained to communicate verbally and written clearly and succinctly. I mean, I think it was Mark Twain that said, I, I've written you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one, right?
1: That's right, that's right, that's exactly right, yeah. It, it, it takes incredible work to write a simple narrative document about a proposal or a situation.
0: Wasn't it, uh, Jeff Bezos as well, where there was um, a one-pager, if the, the project plan or the, the proposal, uh, needs to fit in one page something along those lines
1: yeah yeah so that is the narrative technique and it was it's uh-huh. typically either a two pager or a six pager and there there's no defined structure for it it just depends on the project but that is the forcing function that forces the team that's writing it to make sure that they get to the simple clarity to propose it. And then the way they start meetings is 10 or 15 minutes to actually then the audience to read, read the paper and then discussion. And so it, it, it forces disciplines on both the, the writing team as well as the, the reading team again, with the purpose of making sure that we are not talking past each other and that we are at the right level of depth on a topic.
0: Again, it's the idea of constraints. And I mean, one of Twitter's success was the fact that it was 140 characters and you had to sit there and you had to work out how to communicate um, either in one tweet or a, a series of tweets. And so often, you know, we use Slack internally, as I'm sure many companies do. And sometimes I'll I'll be writing a message to a coworker, and I'll see that it's five paragraphs long and I actually just stop and it's so easy to just hit enter and, and just, but I, but I sort of think, well, what outcome am I trying to achieve? And is five paragraphs going to achieve that more than one or two paragraphs? The likelihood is no. Likelihood is no. And usually I just delete it all and say, how do I say all of that in one or two paragraphs? And it's really tricky, but I do find that it actually helps with me communicating my point with higher impact?
1: Well, one of the uh, funny stories I tell in uh, the leadership book is about an S team meeting, which is Jeff's senior team. And he asked me a question and it was about how many sellers had been launched. And in- i started to explain why we actually couldn't launch any sellers and he and he stopped me he goes the answer to this question begins with a number and so i then said the number which was like eight or six or something like that and i was going to explain and then and then he kind of tore off on on like how uh, you know that was just unacceptable and there was a lot of constraints around it and he wanted me to 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 not allow the business to be constrained by other limiters in the business and that was my job to open those up whether they reported to me or not like that was the essence of the message but that but that lesson of answering the question that is posed to you especially when it's from a senior executive. They know what they're asking. They know what they're looking for. So answer the question and then explain if it's appropriate. But so many people they answer questions in these circuitous, long-winded ways that you you actually can't find the answer within all of that um, verbiage. And so answer the question upfront and then explain. I think um,
0: your points about leadership as well. Of uh, leaders are right a lot, and um, you know it's it's hard. It, you know, leaders don't know everything. No one's got a monopoly on everything. But I think one of my frustrations as well is, is that um, leaders leaders see through windows um, and get a, a bigger picture about issues that you may not even be aware are issues, and they factoring that into their choices and, and their decisions and 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 what they're guiding you um, t- towards. You know, and it's 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 a case of. Um, sometimes you know what you don't know but more often than not you don't even know what you don't know and and that I guess we have to stay humble with respect
1: to to leaders with respect to that point yeah I mean really the the essence of that leadership principle is that within your domain of expertise you, you actually need to be an expert right and um You should understand the things that are going on within your business and within your organization to a detailed level that others might find surprising and that by paying attention to those details, A, it sets the tone for the rest of the organization, B, it helps drive to operational excellence and C, that's where insights for innovation come from is by paying attention to the details and trying to improve them over time. And and so there is a high expectation at Amazon that leaders understand their business to an incredibly detailed degree. John,
0: I know we're running out of time, but one, one more of these points that I wanted to chat with you about was hire and develop the best. Now, I I, I I always say that every business is a people business, and your team isn't only important, it's everything. It is absolutely make or break. I know it's a cliché, but I live, eat and breathe it every day where the good hires just open up your business in remarkable ways and, and uh, missteps in hiring, and sometimes it's not even the wrong person, but it's the wrong seat on the bus for that person, can really derail things. How does Amazon approach to hiring and retaining and nurturing the, be- the best and having the right person on the right seat of the bus, which for an organization the size
1: of Amazon must be a real puzzle unto itself? Yeah, well, they put a lot of effort into the interviewing process. I mean, they really, they don't skip steps and they try not to hire in a hurry, you know, and everything, right? Because that's when your worst hiring mistakes Absolutely. Happen, Absolutely. and so one of the thing, one of the processes they have, and and this has all been written out there about it, and I write it in my book, is called the bar raiser, and the bar raiser is in in is a role in the interview loop. They aren't within the organization that is hiring, so they don't have the pressure of why we're hiring this person and everything. And their job is just to evaluate this person within a specific category of skills and say, could this person do a bunch of other jobs here at Amazon? Because jobs are gonna change quickly over time. We need to hire people that are fungible, that they're able to do multiple things, right? Adaptable. And they're adaptable and they wanna be adaptable. Um, and so the bar raiser can veto a hire, and the hiring manager, nobody can change it. And so that's the type of commitment to hiring excellence that really sets the basis for you know getting the right people um, on the team. And then I think the other thing that they do is they they do you know quickly evolve roles, and they make it a positive thing to be working your way out of a job and to be automating your business and so that the job in a year from now is not nearly the same job as it is today and that's just part of how the organization runs what happens when a hire is not working out they are they are pretty quickly pretty quick to address it you know and everything right um and so they they try to coach and when that doesn't take effect then then they um part ways John, so much fascinating uh,
0: food for thoughts. I'm going to put all the links to the show notes, but I believe believe you've got a a bit of a special gift uh, for
1: people listening to the show. Yeah. So at johnrossman.com slash monkey. So that's johnrossman.com slash monkey. You'll get a poster of the 14 leadership principles of Amazon. So you can remind yourself what those leadership principles are every day. And I've got a sample chapter from each of my books that you can download and read from there. And these books are so
0: cheap. I think they, I don't know, I think they're less than 10 bucks a pop on Kindle. Is
1: um, well, I I did them on one of the Amazon's platforms, so I built them on the Create uh, uh, space uh, self service publishing platform, and that allows for a really good book at a great price because we don't have all the middlemen
0: involved. Fantastic! So, I mean, it is such an in- incredible investment. I'm going to buy a couple of my my team this book and. Um, John, really appreciate the time uh, joining us. John Rossman, who's a former Amazon exec. And he's also currently the managing director at Alvarez and Marcel. Um, a fascinating chat. You've given me a lot of food for thought. So um, even personally, I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Kevin, thanks for having me.
3: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content (coughs) error-free.
0: Kate, I absolutely love those 14 principles. I love them. I can s- tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know why? It's very, it's very difficult as a CEO to actually articulate a culture that you want or an approach that you want or an attitude that you want. It's, it, you have a sense of, of what you want, but to actually articulate that in a way that's not fluffy but that's quite practical. Um, is actually incredibly hard, and Amazon have done it very, very well. And I've and just to tell um, you know our listeners that I love it so much that I've I've been going through them principle by principle every week and challenging our team with a question around each individual principle, and uh, the team is answering, and I'm I'm collating that in a document that the team has visibility to, and they can each see each other's answers, and I've. I've loved the insights and the knowledge, and 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 so much that has been surfaced in our organisation as a result of these fourteen principles. So yes, it's just been another tool for us.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I've enjoyed writing them as well. That's um, it gives you sort of a uh, something a little bit deeper to think about and contribute,
0: which is good. Yeah, and look, I mean, Amazon have done. Not only have they done a lot right, they've done a lot right in an incredibly difficult industry. I mean I mean mm. e commerce, you know, when you got physical goods and you got logistics and you got freights and you got returns and you got that is that is tough. That is not that's tough to get right. I mean, I mean, you know, a lot of people also don't realize that Apple Apple's one of the most effective manufacturing and logistic companies. Forget software and hardware. To get the supply chain right, not have significant overstocks, to, to have quality, to make sure everything gets sent to the right places, you know, that's where there's a huge amount of secret sauce in Apple as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. And he, he made a good point too about Amazon being a platform business or a business that other businesses can build on top of, which I guess is sort of similar to like what Managed Foot is doing with uh, Twitter's API, but like that in itself would like pose a whole heap of problems for for Amazon themselves as the the base company you know they're going to have to make sure that everyone else is relying on them so they're responsible for so many things
0: well i can tell you that 99% of business school professors I would say that if the CEO of Amazon came to them and said, one of our biggest competitive advantages is our technology stack that we've built to service all these millions of customers, um, and we've developed all this amazing server technology, but I think we should actually sell that service technology as a, as a side business and make money off that. And even so much that competitors, other e-commerce companies can even use that technology. I'm 99% sure that business um, professors would have actually said, don't do that. I mean, that's a classic mistake. You're actually selling your competitive advantage. Um, hang yeah. on to it. And what did Amazon do? They went and they built AWS, which, you know, they, they were selling a lot of the um, secret sources, even to competitive businesses, and uh, they're coexisting. And AWS is turning over, I don't know, between 5 to $10 billion, a huge amount of money. It's the leader in this space by far. And they're breaking, you know, they're breaking all the rules of, of established thinking around business strategy. So, you know, and, and they're being re- rewarded with an incredible share price growth.
2: Definitely, definitely. I think the trick there would be that you just have to be the best option or the best product. So for them, they just keep working on AWS and making it so amazing that why would anyone bother to build their own when you could just
0: build on top of theirs? And now Jeff Bezos, just like Elon Musk, is involved with Rockets, right? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. he's one of the big competitors to uh, Elon Musk. They've even had some friendly stroke, snarky little – tweets tweet exchanges you know oh i didn't realize did not realize yeah yeah so um i haven't kept track i think they're taking slightly different angles um i'm not, i haven't read about uh, you know elon musk has been getting a lot more press about this than than jeff bezos but uh, jeff bezos is definitely in the in this in the space rocket game um he's also he's also invested through his private um investment company in base camp um, Jeff Be- mm-hmm. Bezos, and in fact, he's the only, as far as I know, he's the only external investor in Basecamp. Oh, okay, but I
2: thought Basecamp were
0: bootstrapped. They were bootstrapped, and but with a bit of, um, they sold a little bit of equity. Yeah, and I chatted. I think I chatted to okay. um, David hanemeyer on uh, about this on our previous podcast where we chatted with him. So uh, um, yes. interesting. They were already profitable, I believe, when they took um, – so it wasn't sort of an investment per se. It was just, I guess, de-risking a little bit and, um, you know, getting getting Jeff on uh, on board as, you know, to work with them, which in itself is would be worth a lot.
2: Yeah. So, you know what else I found interesting from this interview with John Rossman was Amazon's hiring process and the, the role of the bar raiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the idea, I did a little bit more extra research actually and the idea that these people already work for Amazon, they get identified as people who really care about the culture, really care about their job and they're like invested in the company. Um, But they don't get paid any extra money. They're just required to work an extra five to six hours on top of their already full-time job in order to hire people who aren't even in their department.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Mm,
2: yeah, but it's just and, and these people have the power to completely veto a hire. So they'll throw questions from left field that are a little bit tricky and at the end of the day, they're looking for people who are really flexible um, and can provide value for more than the role that they're going for.
0: And that boy, is that hard to 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 work out in an interview?
2: Definitely, definitely. I just thought it was an interesting thing that they sort of use this as it's not even a promotion. it's just a, uh, it's just an honor, I guess, mm. to be elected as a bar raiser at Amazon.
0: I love it. I love it. Yeah. And it's, you know it's probably hiring is probably something that I think about more than any other issue in our business. It's, it's the hardest thing to get right. Um, I mean Amazon Amazon probably have a separate problem to us and that because they're such a strong brand, their pipeline of hires is so big. That they mm. have to work out ways to filter. We have a bit of a different challenge where we we have to get visibility and we have to reach out and, and work out ways to um, you know get people in. But it's still the same problem of getting you know the right person for the right role, and it's mm. it, it's a famously difficult problem. It's so difficult that Google even just just banks people. They've just got a lot more people than they need because they'd rather just keep them when they find them and some of them they even just keep away from their competitors and they just say choose a project that vaguely ties in with something we're doing and do it on your terms and just don't get hired by a competitor and um, that's it thank you very much and they, pay, <laughs> and they pay some of these smart people a lot of money. Uh, so it's, it's crazy out there for tech talent. It's it's unbelievably crazy out there for tech talent. If you're a young person and you're listening to this podcast, or even not a young person, dare I say, as not a young person myself, um, coding, right? If you got an aptitude yeah. for coding and an interest in coding, uh, um, an and, and, and interest in coding, Boy, is there unlimited demand for um, good coders and, and and also project managers with a technical knowledge and you know anyone that's got a technical literacy, but particularly if you're a good coder and front end coder, full stack, back end. It's uh, and it's only going to get it's only going to get um, higher demand. I think our industry is far outpacing the growth of our industry is far outpacing the growth of candidates in our industry.
2: Yeah, at this stage, yes, I think there are like. If they start making uh, development a little bit more sexy for education and for high school students, then you could see a big turnaround. But at the moment, it gets sort of pigeonholed a little bit as a not a cool thing to do, I guess.
0: And it's a catch-22 situation, right? Because the cool kids don't do it, then the other cool kids don't do it and it's a vicious cycle. But if cool kids start doing right. it, then it becomes the cool thing and it's, you know, humans just... They follow each other like that. Like it's, you know, in, in Iran and Russia, um, for women, um, software engineering is a very established common path because they see others doing it and their pep mother's done it. And it's, you know, and in the West, it's still so unusual. You know, it's so so Definitely. so unusual, and um, it's. I don't. I don't think inherently the brains are that different. I mean, in Iran and Russia, there's plenty, plenty of, and India, there's plenty of female developers. So, what should be different about Australia and America, right? It's just probably just the socialisation around it.
2: Yeah, for sure. I like. I agree a hundred percent there. I think it is a. Uh, yeah, it just needs to be better. I mean, education itself could also be improved. But then just needs yeah more emphasis on it and be a little bit more open, more accessible, and uh, I think you could really sell people too on the even working remotely now. Like I actually surprised myself and I really like it. But yeah, if somebody told me that you know you could take your computer and work for a great company overseas and travel and basically world at your feet type thing, you would you would be like wow that that's a career for me. Like but you don't think about that stuff. It's not taught. It's not told.
0: Well, I think the whole – and we're going to chat about this um, in, a, in a couple of podcast time about the whole remote, remote work side of things. I definitely think – I don't know if it's the future because I think a lot of companies still don't have the confidence um, to actually go with it. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity for companies that are confident enough to take the leap to actually um, you know, secure good candidates – I'd um, rather have, you know, our attitude has, uh, you know, we we shifting to a full remote or remote optional company, and, uh, you know, my philosophy these days is I'd rather have the 100% perfect person somewhere in the world than having the 50% correct person sitting in Sydney. And uh, the, the war for talent in Sydney is, is so extreme that um, we almost, you know, it, it, I'll be honest, I'll say we can't compete with the banks, we can't compete with Atlassian, we can't compete with Campaign Monitor. And um, so we have to, you know, we, we have to look at other options and it's, you know, working out well. I'd much rather you working for us in Canada than, than having no Kate. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But back, back to my point about it just being like a more – appealing career, like this, this sort of work never, ever occurred to me until a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah. So, if yeah. it got
2: taught better, I think more people would jump on it.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, I chatted with a woman the other day who's involved in Tech Sydney and, uh, you know, we spoke about an initiative of going out to schools, to high schools and just surfacing a little bit about our industry, you know, and, 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 mm. and we want to get the smart kids to consider tech startups as an option. Yep. You know not just law and medicine and you know the traditional careers and accounting and finance just you know you, you can go straight into startups and um, we we need the the ambitious you know sorts to to head into our industry, not just those traditional industries, which is still a little bit of a problem in sydney you know it's it's mm. it's it's still but anyway that's episode number ninety eight uh, our first episode with Kate in canada um <laughs> we're going to try i haven't seen any bears yet (laughs) (laughs) Um, we're going to we're going to try keep these coming once a week we've got some fantastic interviews lined up for the next few weeks Um, i'm really excited uh, for you folk to hear them and as mentioned please tweet me please email me we love hearing from you we know you're listening it really helps us two things really help us one thing is if you leave leave a review on itunes another thing is if you Give Manage Flitter a little whirl um, if you do use Twitter. Uh, we'd love you to uh, have a look at that. So, anyway, we're going to catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening.
2: See ya.